This is a wee bit of everything. The podcast that explores all things sport and teaching. Hello there and welcome to the A Wee Bit of Everything podcast with your hosts Lewis and Clark. Thanks for coming back to tune in to this week's episode. We really are amazed by all the support we have received from everyone so far. Our partner of the podcast is Premiership Experience who have played a big role in helping us develop. Premiership Experience offer fantastic sports tours within the UK and abroad so be sure to check them out on Twitter at Prem Experience. This is a professional learning platform where we get ideas and insights from like-minded professionals. Our vision is to inspire, to teach and to entertain. So let's get started with this week's episode of A Wee Bit of Everything. This week on the A Wee Bit of Everything podcast, we are joined by Bradley Bush from Inner Drive. Inner Drive is a mindset coaching company working in education, business and sport as well. They specialise in realising your potential. They cover growth mindset, metacognition and stress management strategies as a result to improve motivation, learning, confidence and performance in their clients. So our clients tonight when we're talking will be our students in our schools and we'll talk about how teachers can support them um, using growth mindset, metacognition and stress management strategies to improve attainment and increase achievement in our schools. Right Bradley, how you doing? It's great to have you on a wee bit of everything. How are you doing things? Yeah, good. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's great to uh, finally get get you on after um, kind of come back and forth with emails. But now we're really looking forward to hearing more about growth mindset, and metacognition, and the stuff that you're doing with staff now to support them and and, and maybe previous work with pupils as well or students. So, sure. um, before we get into the main part, then uh, could, could you give us and the listeners a little background information on your career to date? Sure. Um, so my background. Um, is slightly different from what I think most people in education. Uh, I'm a psychologist by trade. Um, I initially started in sports, uh, mainly in football, uh, to see could we help elite athletes use psychological research to help improve performance. Mm-hmm. Um, spent about 10 years or so working in football. I also did some stuff with Team GB at the last few Olympic and Paralympic Games. And kind of got to the stage where I noticed an increasing focus on my work was actually about just helping them learn more efficiently and more effectively. So it started off around performing under pressure and then it kind of came to like over long periods of time, the best athletes were the ones that we thought could just learn quickest and fastest. And so then my job in the psychologist and the team was to look up what does the research actually say about the science of learning? And almost all the research that we found came from educational psychology um and so we made we found it interesting that a lot of that research despite being in education wasn't getting filtered through to teachers mm-hmm. uh, i think it's getting better over the last five years or so um but we kind of thought we'd make the crossover and start talking about how teachers can actually use the research that was intended for them in the first place um so my company in a drive we work now with about I think 300 schools uh, with both staff and students um, mainly around the science of learning and what that looks like in the classroom. Okay, so see in terms of the science of learning, is that just how people learn in different ways? Is that kind of, the same kind of yeah? So initially, we started looking at mainly the memory areas. So kind of how do we increase memory recall uh, and retrieval? Yeah. Um, and but then we kind of found out there's loads of other stuff that impacted on learning. So we kind of decided to broaden it out beyond just memory. So how do you motivate bored students? Um, just how important is sleep, um, how stuff like mindset and resilience, which I think are so important, but almost are in danger of becoming almost like buzzwords in education. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, and kind of just looking at if all these factors make up a part of learning, what does the research say on them? Like mobile phones is another one that I find quite uh-huh. interesting. Uh-huh. Um, technology. Um, and in more recent years, metacognition has become really popular. And yet, despite that, most people don't actually know what it is. And it sounds quite fancy and complicated. But mm-hmm. actually, when you strip it away and get to the research, it's, some of it's actually just quite straightforward, I think. Yeah. Uh, so, so many factors then impact on a child's learning. Um, yeah. I think I was listening to a podcast actually the other week there, and it was talking about how there's a sleep crisis in the UK. 
um, oh. you know, because of technology and the kids are staying up too late and they're not ready to learn in the morning? I'm, I'm absolutely convinced of it. So anecdotally, when we go into the student workshops, we speak to students, I reckon average in the room for teenagers is about six, six and a half hours. There are always a handful of students who are getting four or five hours. Yep. And you can have the best pedagogy, the most nuanced curriculum, but if your kids in the room are getting five or six hours sleep a night, then come Thursday or Friday, they're zombies. Uh, yeah. And you just can't get away from that. And yeah, that's really frustrating, I think, for schools because ultimately schools and teachers get judged and assessed on the grades that the students get. And yet so much of that, what impact that happens outside of the classroom yeah, as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, so it's, it's, it's tricky. Yeah, it's like 85% of learning happens outside the school gates. Is that, is that the percentage? I, I, think, I think it was a start, yeah. I was on a course in last week and it was like 15% of um, is in school. Things that teachers can directly impact and then a lot of it's going to try to engage families. Yeah, and, and, and that's why I think you're going to see a growing trend actually in the next few years of schools are getting pretty good at being evidence-based for their staff and tricking that down to teachers. I do think the interactions between parents and schools is the next logical step for kind of how do we bridge that gap of yeah. research into action and, and actually part of a school's responsibility is to upskill and educate parents now as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just trying to hammer home the value of getting a good quality sleep isn't it? That's the hard thing to do when oh, you're yeah. competing against all your Xboxes and stuff like that that are just massively. so addictive. Mm-hmm. Massively. Uh, so I once got told by a sleep researcher this is their rough rule of thumb so this isn't like from a particular study or like facts or anything like that but they said there's a rough rule of thumb they think for each electrical item that's in a kid's room that isn't a light bulb uh you can minus one hour of sleep so like ballpark a kid with an xbox and a phone they would bet they get two hours less sleep than a kid that didn't have an xbox and a phone in their room uh mm. and, and uh, stuff like that's huge yeah uh, that's it's worrying i think um, but oh, massively! Uh, uh, like another, yeah. like another one. Um, like breakfast is a classic as well. Uh, we know there's loads of research that links breakfast to concentration and memory the ne- uh, later in the day. Um, and some schools do provide breakfast clubs. Um, but again, just educating parents of just how important that kind of stuff is. Yeah. Also, also what, also what they're eating, but rather than like missing breakfast, yeah. like if they're having like a sugar-coated breakfast. Like Nutella, uh, and, you know what I mean? Like it's just like that's yeah. just a spike in their, their sugar levels, and then yeah. that, that that hinders our concentration and stuff as well. Yeah, you get you, what you typically see with that stuff. You get like this massive spike, yeah. and then you get the massive crash kind of uh-huh. afterwards. Yeah. I, I, I was going to say I can remember when I was at college, um, when I was started off in my kind of teaching journey. I went through the kind of sports coaching route down college, and our nutrition yeah. lecturer there, and um, we were learning about like digestion, all that sort of stuff, and about like. Was it David Ock? Yeah, David Ock. I shout out to David Ock. Um, he, I think it was him actually, and he made his, he gave the class like loads of sweets and you, you kept eating them and then everybody was just knackered by the end of it. So, and it was just a wee experiment to see like how yeah. it actually affects you. And you. Yeah, you're sluggish after it. I like that. Um, well, I mean, we know as well, like so many kids, more than you think, would consider an energy drink a decent breakfast replacement. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and like, I mean, they've done the studies on that and the impact that has, and it's just terrible for learning. And how do they like? It's just these companies, like all these big like corporations and companies, get away with it, but it's madness. Like, oh, power marketing. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Are you were saying, Lewis, because you've got a fifty-five minute, a fifty-five mile drive, that you have sugar puffs in the morning, so you can get. <laughs> I, I, we, we Red Bull is my milk. <laughs> <laughs> See, is uh, it? That's exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> get, get halfway to work before I realise I forgot my car. <laughs> I know. I'm Flying in, <laughs> right. So, th- can I get into the, the growth mindset uh, research that you've done? How, like, how would you go about uh, making kind of growth mindset real in our classrooms when considering like how students learn and how, uh, as we were speaking about there, how parents can support their, yeah. their children as well? So, I think growth mindset is honestly the best psychological theory done badly in education because everyone rushed to embrace it. Um, and yet I think it's kind of been morphed a bit over the years. So it starts from this good place of like at a very basic level, the belief that everyone can improve and get better and intelligence is malleable. I think most people get into teaching agree to that kind of belief that Mm -hmm. they can help their kids get better. Um, 
And yet it's morphed now, I think, into this kind of cheesy, anyone can do anything if you just try hard enough. Mm-hmm. Whereas the brutal reality is, like, I'm five foot five. I'm one of the shortest guys I know. Like, I can get better at the high jump, but just by putting in effort doesn't mean I'm going to have a chance of really winning gold medal at the mm-hmm. high jump. Like, but it doesn't mean I can't improve. And so I think p- part of if this drive to develop a growth mindset is being clear on what we mean by growth mindset for a start. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's not just about effort. It's about learning from mistakes. It's about receiving feedback. It's about having high expectations. And so I think there are a number of things that educators and parents can do. Um, some are more well-known than others, stuff like praising the process. So, for example, like I've got a toddler, right? And I find it fascinating how like the go-to praise that he hears from within my own family, and sometimes even myself, despite me knowing about this stuff, he does anything and everyone goes like, oh, you're such a smart boy. You know, like, you're such a clever kid. It's like the go-to compliment. Yeah. Uh, you get 10 out of 10 in your spelling test. You're like, oh, you're such a clever boy. Well, is he clever? Or did he work really hard on trying to remember how to spell the word great or whatever the word is? Uh, and or, or does he just take after his dad? <laughs> Maybe, yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm blissfully happy to take all the credit in my wife's absence for my child's geniuses. Uh, but it's just fascinating how, like, actually maybe he listened well, maybe he tried hard, but like the go-to praise is often about intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for a young age, if you hear that you're really clever if you get 10 out of 10, what do you start to internalize when you get 9 out of 10 or 8 yeah. out of 10? Um, mm-hmm. And so pra- what we praise, I think, is interesting. Um, mm-hmm. I think we... The, one of the easy ways to develop growth mindset is trying to avoid a culture where everything's kind of comparing against one another. Um, yeah. Because the problem with that, <laughs> it that is, but, and especially for, yeah, especially as well for young kids, because part of trying to figure out where do I sit in this hierarchy of the yeah. world uh-huh. is, okay, I'll measure myself against the people next to me and that will give me some sort of indicator. Hmm. But the problem with that, and we still see some schools still do this sort of ranking in the classroom, for example, it's a zero sum game. For each kid who rises, someone has to drop. And yet, actually, the behaviours and values and things that we care about, like learning, that's the stuff we should be praising. So coming from it from a sport background, I always kind of say, like, the award that everyone wants to win in sport is player of the year. Like, that means you're the best. That's At the award ceremony, that's the end of the evening. That's the last mm. like, prestigious award. The award no one wants to win is most improved player. Because yep. the stigma around most improved is, you were rubbish and now you can kind of catch it without it hitting you in the face. Uh, and yet, we should try and develop a culture where most improved is the high status award. Like Everyone can have a chance of winning that regardless of ability. Yep. And it reflects the values of resilience, learning, improvement. And that's the stuff as educators we want to see from all of our kids. Um, mm. So trying hard, I think, to create a culture that that's linked to i think is a good starting point so you think you think a whole school culture is really important then and everyone has to buy in and be consistent with it yeah and this is actually it so we kind of get requests sometimes for growth mindset people go can you send us a worksheet or an activity to do mm-hmm. and that kind of misses the point like it's not someone once described it to me it's not an intervention it's a philosophy it's a culture uh yeah. like i think we've all been in workplaces where we've wanted to work hard for a particular boss and we've all been in workplaces where we don't really care what the boss thinks and therefore our performance often suffers. So it is about creating that environment and that culture. That's why stuff like high expectations and like feedback. You can't talk about growth mindset, I think, without feedback. And yet, most feedback that people get, uh, like feedback training, have you ever had the feedback training where they kind of go, sorry, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Or should I yeah, 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 yeah. Go for uh, uh, sorry. So have you ever like people talk about the shit sandwich where people go like, uh, yeah, you, yeah. Give, you give the praise and then I like, give the actual brutal feedback that I care about and then yeah. I've got to finish with a praise to make you yeah. feel better. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't work because everyone just hears the, hears the, the shit part. They never hear like the praise uh, inside uh, of it. That's all I remember. And it doesn't work. And yet we should have training around what does high quality feedback look like if that's going to be the vehicle to help you improve, which is what growth mindset Mm-hmm. is all about yeah so that's a kind of main part of it is the feedback that you give in a growth yeah. mindset way praising Definitely. effort praising the process uh, praising the process as you said praising the process effort curiosity doing mm. the risky thing so like i want to put told by someone so you know you're kind of t- encouraged to praise healthy risk taking as part of this sort of growth mindset mm. yeah uh, when you praise it i think it's really interesting because 
let's say you take a risk. Um, if I praise you once we know the outcome, if you've succeeded in the outcome, and I praise you for taking that risky behavior or like the harder challenge option, you're gonna actually just think I'm just praising the fact that you were successful. Yeah. And if you weren't successful, if you failed, and I go, oh, but well done for taking like that risk, you're gonna see it as sometimes patronizing, uh-huh. as just trying to make you feel better about the failure. So someone's told me you should praise that risky decision-making if it was the right thing to do yeah, before we know before the outcome. The, yeah, because yeah. that way I'll associate the praise with that behavior, not with the outcome either way. That's and so stuff like point. that, yeah, and so stuff like that, I think, can just can, can make an impact. Mm. Is that stuff you would do with adults? And let's say you said you worked in, was that the same kind of work you did when you were working in football? Was it this kind of praising the process growth mindset type stuff as well? Oh, or? M- massively. And the, and the problem with elite sport is you can't get away from it being outcome based. Yeah. Uh, so, like, take uh, the elite athletes, like, yes, I want you to learn, especially the younger ones who are breaking into the first team yeah. in football, say. I want you to learn and I want you to reflect and I want you to make risky decisions. But we also have to acknowledge if you don't perform to a certain level and you keep making risky decisions that don't come off, even if you're learning, you'll be out of the team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, so that's yeah. a really hard thing to, to kind of balance. Uh, the nearest parallel I can come up with is, and I think that it's been faded out now, but graded lesson observations are, are a nonsense because if I'm ever going to be graded, immediately we're talking about performance and I'm not talking about me learning, yeah. then I'm just going to put on a show. Like, mm-hmm. why would I possibly risk trying to teach in a different way or use a new strategy if I'm being observed and this is a high stakes observation mm-hmm. because I just want to get the outstanding. I, I, I don't want to take the risk of maybe failing, especially if it's linked to my pay. Um, yeah, I think, all schools are, I think all the schools are going down the learning walk side, aren't they? Kind of route, yeah. aren't they? So they're just turning up when you're not expecting them just to, to watch a lesson rather than having yeah. a specific date. Uh, and again, what you kind of said earlier about that sort of culture or ethos is like, Learning walks only work if I genuinely believe you're there to give me feedback to help me improve because we're all in this together and we all want yeah. me to get better. If I perceive it as any sort of judgment, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. soon as we get into judgments, people get defensive. No, you don't want to get personal either. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, people feel threatened, don't they? Yeah, and that's why they, uh, if you want to know why people often reject feedback, uh, often because they confuse Even though you think you're giving feedback on the task, they actually hear it as feedback as who they are as a person. Yeah. And then they right? get sensitive that's, and argue. Yeah. That's, ah, that's interesting. So, so, so let's say you give me a piece of work and I go, okay, uh, Lewis, you, you got four out of 10 yeah. for that. If you perceive that to be, I'm telling, you're, I'm telling you that you're dumb. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you go, well, I don't want this label of being dumb. So I'm going to tell you why that is the wrong, why four out of 10 is not fair. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I go like, you got four out of 10 and I know this is a tricky piece of work, but I know if we work on it, I can help you get better. Mm-hmm. You're far more likely to receive that sort of feedback better because you're not seeing it because you know it's just feedback on the task. Mm-hmm. There's no reflection on who you fundamentally are as a person. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. That. I know, I've seen a lot of research as well on growth mindset was that um, it's not just enough just to say that just because I've failed, I made a mistake that, and they'll be able to do it next time or hopefully they can do it next time you actually have to give them feedback on how to achieve it next time whereas some I think, I think we fell, fell into the trap as teachers just saying right I know it's fine to make mistakes fail failure is part of it let's just move on but you're not actually telling them what's the, what's the concrete feedback yeah. to, get, to achieve it next time well like, in, in a weird way like mistakes and failure have almost been fetishised into like that they're really good things and yet <laughs> like, I've, we've all been in on results day at schools when kids do fail, it's not a good thing. Like, it does have consequences to their life. So, like, it's a myth that mistakes help you learn. I think mistakes can help you learn. And, like, if, they're, if the debrief is yeah, structured yeah. afterwards... Yeah, if like just, reflected on. Yeah, whereas just mistakes that are reflected on are just going to be repeated. And, like, that mm. doesn't help you learn. Yeah, totally. Right, thanks, for, thanks for that, Bradley. That was good. With, with all that kind of in mind, Bradley, from the, the first two questions, how can we then, as teachers, can encourage students to develop that growth mindset if you are maybe like, new to, to teaching it, say, if you're trying to install that? Like, is, it, is it better starting with younger pupils, or can this just kind of be drip-fed in it sort of at any age? So I think two things. One, definitely, in an ideal world, definitely better with younger, younger students yeah. uh, because essentially they haven't developed as much of an inner critic 
mm-hmm. essentially. Uh, so they just take your word as, as gospel and go, yeah. like, okay, that's just the norm and the expectation. Uh, that being said, it is definitely possible with older students. Like, I used to teach at university, and my first lecture each year was like, I generally believe every student can get a first on my module. Mm-hmm. Like, there are certain things you have to do to be able to get a first, and it doesn't guarantee you'll get a first, but it just gives you a better chance. And I think that, so like, it is definitely possible with older students. The main thing I think teachers can do, and this has probably been the biggest reflection on what I would have done differently had I gone, if I could go back and do like my early years again. There's some quite nice research that shows that a lot of people think motivation leads to success. So if I can motivate you to try hard, you're more likely to be successful. And that's partly true. But what they've also found is that the reverse is also true, which is if I can help you experience success, that would be making you more likely to want to put in more effort. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's quite encouraging because that means as a teacher, there's certain strategies I can then do to help you ensure that early success. So we can start small, for example, and build up. Uh, I can scaffold the support that I give you and maybe give you lots of support to begin with and then reduce that support. Uh, homework can be a good opportunity for you to experience success and have that repetition. And I know you had the podcast with Kate Jones, like that's why retrieval is such a yeah. good thing. Whereas if you ever set homework that talks about new concepts, there's quite a higher risk of failure with that new concept because I'm not there to guide you and so misconceptions can take root. And therefore, if your first experience of a new topic is failure, it's really easy for you to then go, see, I knew I wasn't a math person. And immediately it's fixed and it shuts down. So I think experiencing success and giving them opportunities to succeed and then either reducing the support or increasing the level of difficulty of the task, but gradually, which is why, I don't know, like if, I mean, if you guys are 12, like, I think stuff like Rosenstein's principles become really popular in education. And one of those principles of instruction is small steps because yep. it helps you obtain that high success rate, which is actually, that often comes before motivation and mindset as opposed to motivation and mindset leading to success. Yeah, that's a good point. So that's a really good way of putting it. So I've never thought about it like that. If their first Neither. experience of a new topic is as a failure, then it's going to kind of demotivate them almost. Yeah. Well, honestly, the amount of time I used to spend trying to motivate students and you give the pep talk and yeah. you give mm-hmm. like, the slogans and you put motivational quotes up on the wall. But if then you go do algebra and I feel like it's a foreign language, and I don't even know what we're talking about. No amount of Gandhi and, you know, David Beckham quotes is ever going to change. Yeah. Oh, I, I feel really dumb at maths. Whereas, if I can experience some success early in algebra, my whole self-perception of myself as a student is, okay, maybe I am a student who can do math. Uh, so I'll probably try a bit harder. And then if I have a failure, it doesn't have to be the end because I've got this whole evidence of previous experiences of having success in this area. Yeah, you're setting, that, it, that, mm-hmm. you're setting them up to succeed. Yeah. And um, that's building our confidence. Yeah, and it's really, well. important, it's really important that that doesn't get confused with dumbing down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, like, like that, that could be a starting point, and then we can scaffold and we can increase the level of difficulty. But like, we do that incrementally as opposed to starting too high. Then you gotta go. Yeah, or even if you, even if even if you start, I probably start in the middle, probably too much, and then I lose the bottom end. Yeah, yeah I think, and I think. Do you know what I mean? Rather yeah. than I suppose I could probably start smaller and then get the whole class being successful. Well, and this is the challenge of teaching is because you've got to pitch it sometimes at different levels to different mm-hmm. students, um, mm-hmm. which is why differentiation is one of the hardest things to do. Um, yeah. And there's so many different ways you can do it. Like I just always thought it like in a PE context when I first started out, it was differentiating like the activity you're doing, but it's just so much more than that. Having oh, it's so much. It's crazy. So like, again, so I look back at some of the stuff that I did with good intentions but I, used to, I spent ages doing like a sort of, have you ever done like the Nando's differentiation? Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and you get them to self-select and like, who's ever going to choose to put themselves in this awkward position of maybe failing? So everyone just chooses something that they know they can do. Yeah. Uh, I once had to describe differentiation as really good. We shouldn't vary the task too much, but we should vary the support. So like yeah. we have an expectation of what everyone can achieve. And you might need more time and you might need more one-on-one support and you might not need anything else uh, yeah. and you can just get on with it. But like, we don't dumb down, but we do ensure they've had a chance to experience success. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, so it's about pitching it at that level and then just giving yeah. the ones that need it the more support to achieve the same outcome. Versus yeah. Got you. Uh, I, as opposed to start, as opposed to going, you are struggling, so you do the easy task. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah that makes that's a better that, way of looking at it. Yeah. How, how is that scene ever going to catch up? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we were always going to talk at uni about like for the doing like a differentiated success criteria where it was like all pupils should be able to achieve this by the end of the lesson. Some of you will achieve this, most kind of um, will achieve that. But that kind of is that is that not kind of like I'm not like saying it's dumbing it down, but I don't know if that's. Yeah, but so my problem with that is that I think it starts with good intentions, but like learning doesn't happen in a neat 45 minute yeah, lesson. Definitely like, not. And, and, and it's not linear either. Like the mm-hmm. stuff that we've all had, that we've wrestled with in the past, and for whatever reason on a particular day, you kind of go, oh, that's how it connects with that other thing. And mm-hmm. it kind of makes sense. Um, and I sometimes think learning outcomes and lesson objectives, like, they do have a role, but also it's sometimes stuff that's just done to. Sh- in, like that we think we should do and it looks like that's what's expected of us as educators is it, is um, it fair to say that it should be done then if you're introducing a new topic or something like that where you're introducing something completely brand new to the pupils is that maybe like where it's got a time and place for it or? yeah that, that makes sense like one thing like we know the brain hates like the brain hates uncertainty yeah like uncertainty really freaks us out um almost more so than worst case scenario if we know worst case scenario often we can like Brace for impact and get ready. Yeah. Whereas uncertainty, our brain one, runs wild. And learning outcomes and lesson objectives, especially on a new topic, can help with that because mm-hmm. they can kind of have a go, okay, this is what we've done previously and this is what we're going to do now. I don't know it yet, but I know this is the travel of direction, the direction of travel. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, so I think that, that, that I think sounds totally reasonable. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. That's um, had a few really light bulb moments here. I think that's. Um, nice, yeah. You've, you've explained uh, a couple of things there really, really well there for in terms of like giving them a, a chance of early success. And obviously, when you're introducing a new topic, um, that that's really clicked with me there. Obviously, you don't want that first experience to be an experience of failure. So that's something I'm definitely going to bear in mind because I think I'm maybe guilty of it is trying to introduce something new and then you lose them straight away. So yeah, um, I think something else that I've been kind of doing recently is just even doing like five, five easy questions just to recap some of the stuff, just like literally one word answer question, just to kind of recap the buzzwords from the topics and stuff that we've been doing in PE. Um, and I feel like that really gets them engaged. Like I feel like they actually, they'll sit and they'll do it if they've got like that direct instruction on the board, just a wee task. This is what you need to do. Back page your drawer, answer these five questions and they literally just sit and they just go through it and it just like, yeah. I, yeah, I think really I think first well. five minutes of a lesson that does more learning out that does more learning benefit than getting everyone to write down learning outcomes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, because that immediately they're thinking hard, they're helping to connect the dots. So yeah. the previous lesson. As a teacher, you then get to figure out, oh god, I thought they'd have known this stuff, so maybe uh-huh. I need to like re- revisit it. Um, that's definitely how I start my sort of teaching now mm. compared to yeah. learning outcomes. Yeah. Yeah, I think so retrieval, I, retrieval practice is good as well for seeing gaps in knowledge for them, but also for you as a teacher to see. Yeah, you, you need to go back and reteach as well. Kind of works both ways. Totally. and that's the I think. Uh, again, looking back at my early practice, I definitely assumed too much knowledge had stuck. But I think I spent so long preparing that previous lesson, so surely they've all learned what anaerobic versus aerobic fitness is, and yeah. like, and also there's this thing called the curse of expertise, which is once you know it yourself it's really hard to imagine not knowing it. Uh-huh. Uh, like once you know what fast twitch muscle fibers are, you can't ever imagine a time when you didn't know that. So, uh, so therefore you assume once you've taught it, that their knowledge is kind of similar to yours because I know, I know, I know. you've imparted your knowledge. Whereas retrieval practice is sometimes quite an eye-opener with that sort of stuff. Uh, yeah. And it's important not to take it personally. It's not, they haven't not remembered it because you're a bad teacher. They haven't remembered it all because that's just how the brain works. Mm-hmm. Like, it just forgets stuff. And have not been exposed to it as much as you either. Yeah, exactly. I think yeah, the so challenge as a teacher is like, once you, if you teach National 5 or higher for so many years, like, um, it's then try to teach it in a simplified way that the, the new students coming in yeah. can, can understand it. But because you're teaching it over and over again, you, you just assume that they should get to know it after you've taught it straight away. So much stuff. And also I think there's sometimes a pressure to the belief that learning should always look like engaging and new and we should build on the previous stuff and they're sort of or going back kind of feels like an admission of failure that i didn't teach it right uh, the yeah. first time 
but that's not the case like that is just how learning works yeah mm-hmm. I go back and over it and yeah and just consolidate it that's interesting so well, that being said, then, do you believe we maybe need to try and redefine intelligence in schools or in society, maybe away from being like A's, like A's and getting master's degrees and all that is what determines how intelligent we are? Or should it maybe be more towards, like, say, like the effort or how we interact and connect with people and how we react to certain situations? What's, yeah, your, it's, what's it's, your thoughts on that? It's hard because, like, for example, IQ, yeah. it's been really well researched and it is linked to loads of positive life outcomes uh mm. and it is quite predictive of various things as well so it clearly is a thing uh, and matters um one of the ways so let's take like exams is our, the question i guess is is our exams like a measure of intelligence yeah um, mm-hmm. and i think they are in part but also they're the best proxy we have for effort conscientiousness uh learning from your mistakes uh, mm. And they're not a perfect method by any means, um, mm-hmm. but they're probably the most fair out of all the unfair ones. Because mm-hmm. we know, for example, if you do coursework, uh, schools that can have lots of teacher time, like say private schools, their students tend to be better on coursework because they have more support for that coursework. Yeah. Uh, whereas at least exams is no one knows the questions in advance and the schools don't mark them themselves either. They get marked independently. So yep. they probably are the best proxy for the combination of intelligence and effort and that sort of stuff. Uh, where I think we've gone wrong as a society, and especially in schools, there's nothing wrong with acknowledging, like, you might have a higher IQ than me, just as, like, you might be taller than me. Like, that's just biology necessarily kind of a fact, and part, partly hereditary as well. Yeah. Um, the question is kind of how important is it and how much can we impact on it? So one of the phrases I hate the most in schools, I don't know if you guys have it in yours, is um, you get some class, like some groups, it's called like the gifted and talented group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and immediately that tells those students that their gifts and their talents are what separates them, not what they do with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have no problem with high achieving students needing more demanding work and giving them extra and it being different at times. But I think it needs to be wrapped up in the sort of growth mindset language around resilience and hard working. Um, because even if you're intelligent, if you're not those other things, you're not going to achieve your potential. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Yeah, you need well, to well, so I, I guess well, I, it's interesting that normally people ask that question. Kind of what do you think, I guess, because it's an interesting question. So I'm guessing you've got some thoughts. Yeah, I, I would say... I would say, like, obviously, society, when growing up um, as a student as well in the university, that was always, the intelligence was always measured by the A's that you got in school, or the, the, the degree, if you've got a degree or you went on to, to work. But not necess- it doesn't necessarily mean that you're, you're a better teacher just because you've got a master's degree. Um, some of the best teachers I've seen and worked with have, you know, just the basic honours, uh, the basic degree, but they're really, really good at, and the, way, and the way they connect with the young people and the way they can interact and motivate yeah. and do all these growth mindset principles. Um, so I was just, it was just interesting because I think um, the pupils obviously, it'd be good to educate the pupils to, to know that, they, that it's not all about results and outcomes. It's about, you know, how how you'd react to certain situations when, when you're faced with difficulty or, you know, how you can interact with people and, and, and uh, motivate them or even just by, by how they how they think as well and how they can act. Yeah, and I, I'm not convinced, I can't remember any research, there might be some out there that links teachers with a higher IQ are better teachers. I don't think it works like that. Uh, mm-hmm. I think being a good, like being able to explain stuff mm-hmm. yeah. uh, from the perspective of your students, like that's a really valuable skill that I'm not convinced is, you can say higher IQ equals better at that skill. Yeah. And in fact, pro- probably not. Sometimes yeah, because we were saying that cursive expertise is. Yeah. Uh, to give the sport example, the best players are often the worst managers because they always go like, what do you mean you can't pass that ball 60 yards or, yeah. or receive it with one touch? Because I can do that. So like, what do you mean you can't? Just, just do that. Uh, whereas actually it's the ones who can teach people how to get better are, are, are the better coaches. Yeah, I think it's the one with like emotional intelligence as well. Yeah, and and how you can work with different people and bring yourself on their level and be really adaptable, um, whereas potentially maybe 
that cost of expertise, you think they should be able to do it quickly as well, and you may not be get, get frustrated and not have as yeah. much patience with them. But totally. I, I, I just, just a thought that I, I thought we'd put it in as a question and see what we could get a wee chat around it. Um, right, so moving on then to obviously in school, you, you do a lot of work in schools, Bradley, is that right, with staff yeah. and students as well? Yeah. Yeah. So have you seen any successful school interventions which have really fostered the positive attitude attributes like resilience that you spoke about and that grit? Um, and have they been able to kind of raise attainment like through test scores? Yeah. Uh, so it's always interesting in terms of how do you measure success? So I'm always weary, if I'm honest, of anyone who goes, we did X and as a result, Y increase, like exam results increase, because like, you never know what's just correlated and what's actually caused uh, that success. No, so many um, factors. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so all you can do is kind of make your best guess, really. Um, I've had a lot of schools having some really good success, especially around maths with retrieval practice. Right. Um, we're hearing more schools now doing stuff around medical cognition, so helping their students take more ownership and reflect on their learning. And they certainly attribute that to that intervention. Uh, in terms of resilience, I think schools who are sort of that we work with, one of one of the research papers we talk about is to develop resilience. They say you need high levels of challenge and also high levels of support because mm-hmm. um, the two work in kind of tandem. Um, and seeing resilience in terms of are we challenging our students enough, but also supporting them so that they know they can take risks to fail. Um, they think it's had a a big impact, like the classic example being, I'm not just going to accept your first answer, I want your best answer and I'm going to challenge you and I believe you can be better than that flipping off the cuff answer that you gave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that shows high levels of challenge that I'm placing on the student, but also because you know you can trust me because the relationship and the culture is right, you're willing to essentially expose yourself and think harder about it and mm-hmm. spend time wrestling with it as opposed to just going, I don't know, um, and passing it off. Um, yeah, I think that's a common thing in schools. <laughs> I think yeah. given, given, given that wait time and that think time. Oh, so I, there was an amazing research paper I read the other day which said it looks at like the average wait time um, after you ask a question before you get an answer. Yeah. They said the average wait time was about 0.8 seconds. Uh, though in some classrooms they found it to be about 0.2 seconds and so to give 0.2 seconds some context that's Usain Bolt's reaction time on the 100 meters mm-hmm. or it's not far off how long it takes Google to respond when you hit enter to answer a question and so like how can anyone come up with a really high quality answer in that time? Well, is, that, is that how long that we give them when we target certain people's answer? Is that the average? Yeah. Yeah, uh, and yet they found in this paper, if you can extend it to about even just like three seconds, three yeah. seconds seems to be a nice threshold of higher quality and more quant- better quantity answers. Uh, and you can see how that's linked into so many areas because it's linked into retrieval practice. So you ask the question about how long do I wait to get the answer? But it's also linked into stuff like resilience uh, because I'm happy for you to wrestle and struggle with it for an extra mm-hmm. bit longer. And it's linked to growth mindset because I believe you can come up with a better answer. I believe you can improve. So that's why all these areas of like cognitive science, they all kind of interlink in quite a messy, but in quite a good way. Mm-hmm. So you'd be like, is that like if you're maybe doing like a cold calling thing with the, the pupils in front of you, you would maybe ask the question, then hang fire for about three seconds and then choose someone. Right. That uh, sort of way or. Yeah. And I found it really interesting. So like when I was going through my early years, no one ever spoke to me about wait times and cold callings and retrieval. Yeah. It was only ever like, Piaget and Vygotsky and that was about the extent of, yeah. of, of it uh, whereas I personally love the stuff like cold calling and wait times because it's tangible like I can do that next Thursday in my lesson yeah straight you away can control it's, that. yeah it's not like this abstract concept mm-hmm. whereas sometimes when we talk about mindset and resilience it can feel quite vague mm-hmm. whereas actually if you go this is how we can help them develop that okay I, 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 I can do that that thing it's it's easier to get my hands on yeah you can physically plan that question and that you're yeah. going to ask at that time and yeah that's that makes sense and i think part of that is and i used to hate it 
can he get comfortable with this awkward silence? Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? It's the awkwardness because yeah. you feel like they're absolutely hating it when, yeah. you, when you ask the question. Or... And, and, and there's two things on that. One is uh, if we're observed, like that awkward silence feels like it's going on forever. Um, and two, it comes back to in a lot of initial teacher training, this kind of misconception that learning looks like it's constantly engaging and snappy and like stuff's flying around the classroom and the students are constantly doing mm. something mm. whereas actually a lot of learning can look awkward and silent reflection and i'm not sure okay well think a bit harder what do you really think uh that's more a better reflection i think of what learning looks like yeah i think mm-hmm. you i think you get pre- uh, sort of pre- prepped after like your teaching degree or your um your postgrad whatever it is that you go through and you do have that preconceived idea of what it should be like and then yeah. if you do have a lesson where it is like it's like awkward or maybe it's not like one of your better lessons you're maybe like comparing it like oh i wonder how these guys do it like they seem so amazing at it like yeah. the learning must look amazing in their class when they're um when they're well, well, yeah think, think about any any teaching movie that you've ever seen uh, like the inspirational teacher has this like moment of like yeah. breakthrough whereas like you often have this let's pause for six seconds and all of us think uh c- c- kind of stuff and also <laughs> i think most people get into teaching because we want to help students and i don't want to see you upset or uncomfortable in my classroom but mm. actually now that i know just a little bit is actually quite important as part of that learning process i'm much more comfortable doing it whereas before i thought i was the bad guy mm-hmm. by making people think really hard Whereas actually, mm. I actually now I'm actually helping you by doing that. Mm. Yeah. Nice, interesting stuff. Um, right, moving on to the kind of last part of the main section of the podcast, Bradley. Um, thanks so much for your your interest insights so far. Um, okay. But in in Scotland, but we look at um, I'm sure it's the same in England. Like in the in the lower school, um, we like judge them based on like how we think they're doing from a professional teacher's point of view and how they're progressing within a subject. But then the senior part of the school, it's about like tariff points, it's about getting them to achieve as many exams or pieces of coursework. So obviously there's two sort of different things going on there. In terms of growth, the growth mindset principles that we spoke about, um, how important do you think these are then to achieve like more tariff points and more, more um, A's or just passing courses? Do you believe that growth mindset has a massive part to play in achieving the, the end outcome? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it can. Uh, the key for me, it's kind of like all this stuff like target grades or tariff points, is it's not so much the target itself, mm-hmm. it's how is it used. So you set me this target or number of points, whatever it is, that in itself doesn't do anything. The part that really helps me is knowing how do I go about achieving that? Like what's my next step? And so if it's used as a start of a conversation to convey my high expectations of like, you know, Clark, I believe you can get to this level. Okay, that can be motivating itself. But what really adds value is they go, and this is how we're going to do it. And this is the work I need you to do this week to help you achieve that. Yeah, uh, so continual, yeah. continual feedback. Yeah. Whereas when it's just an arbitrary target that gets written down and it's like a tick box exercise and it creates mm. pressure and the stigma of not achieving that outweighs the motivation of trying to achieve it, that's when I think it becomes problematic. Because growth mindset is all about how can I improve? And these sort of targets give an indication where I could get to but that should as I say be the starting point for how will I then try and get that um, yeah. but when it's just done as a very crude measure of success given your stat earlier about what was it 15% mm. of learning like it's sometimes it's hard to measure the success of a school like cohorts vary within sco- within schools like the groups within schools so therefore mm. you can be the same school and yet you're upper year looks very different to the year below and yet you've done the same stuff with the same teachers so I think kind of data is a good starting point but if it's part of a nuanced conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have, you, have you seen any successful examples of like you training up senior pupils to then mentor the law school like doing some mentoring in terms of growth mindset or is it all kind of like that? The only thing I've seen in research is a very popular growth mindset intervention in, in the research is you have older students Mm-hmm. write a letter to younger students about say, how to do well at school yep. and the actual benefit of that isn't for the younger students it actually just articulates for the older students actually what they need to do for the rest of their time they're like start your work early 
work hard. Oh, so it just goes back hard. to the back to the stuff that they would would have been doing. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Just to bring it back yeah. to their front of their memory. Yeah, and so it's quite a subtle way. Whereas if you say to yourself, "What do you think you need to do?" People kind of give quite uh, yeah. Uh, uh, right. uh, but, but 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 when it's perceived as, can you give someone else advice? It just gets you to articulate to yourself really what that good advice that you probably need to be doing is as well. Is that- is that what they call reverse psychology? As a master psychologist, pretty, pretty much. Uh, they always say that's why you should never trust psychologists in any experiment. There's always uh, <laughs> these sort of hidden agendas. What was it? We did something similar. Well, I don't. It's not really similar, but we did. A, we had to write a letter to our future self. At, was it? Yeah. Do you know your principle. Aye, and then you opened it at the end of the year. What did it say? Mm. Uh, I put 20 quid in it. <laughs> <laughs> That's really clever. Is that your money for the graduation night? <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny because I don't know, do you ever see the famous clip of Brendan Rodgers when he was at Liverpool? Uh, he yeah. kind of did the reverse of like, there's two names in this envelope and these are the people who are going to let me down. And I kind of wondered like, the point of that, because if my name's already in that envelope, does that mean it's like decided and fixed and there's nothing I can do? I know, I know, it was weird. What, it? Was that, yeah. what was that? So he put two names Same. in an envelope. Like three, I think it was three names. I think it was like, These are the people that are going to let me down. Aye. There's three people in here. Make sure you're not in it. I don't know, but then they were already in it, though. But they're already in it. Yeah, I know. exactly. So, uh, so it's like, there's not even giving them a chance. So maybe he's to... not even put anybody in it and he's just saying that. that that's... that's what I'd assume. Uh, but but Aye, the concept. Be but but uh, so it was kind of on the right lines, but the concept's got to be like. You have to believe you can improve. You have to believe the outcome isn't already decided. Like uh, your, fa- your, your fate as a student is not set in stone. It's up for grabs. Like that's got to be the kind of message. Yeah, I suppose, I suppose if they were already in, then try and prove me wrong to why I should right, put, yeah. put them in. Maybe that yes. way would work. That, that way would work. He's yeah. done some really interesting things, though, hasn't he, to get the best out of his players? Like what was it Gerard said that it was, um, he read out letters? Was it in a cup final or something like that? He read out letters from like loved ones when it was oh, like a, a, a really important oh that's right that, yeah. that was absolutely incredible yeah. like the emotion I mean, and all that 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 created yeah. I mean he's a smart guy and like that, that previous example aside like yeah he's a, he's a pretty top level manager oh. yeah, he's, a good, he's, he's a good coach he was good when he was up at Celtic as well he had yeah. a, a lot of success up here to uh, you're, you're into football as well yeah um, so like I spent about th- four or five years working with a couple of guys at Man United um, nice uh, and then I had a couple of years at Crystal Palace and Watford as well. Um, wow. So, well, yeah. Uh, first, team, first team players or kind of players? Yeah. To, yeah. Um, and it's honestly, it's the same sort of conversations that you have in education. It really is. It's like, is it? how can you manage your emotions? How can you be motivated for a long period of time? Mm. How can you learn on, on and reflect on stuff? And again, as coaches, it's been like, how do I teach them to do what I want? Which is kind of what we're trying to do in schools mm. uh, and what does effective teaching and coaching look like the two are really similar mm. and you get some players that like in your experience that are just like that really need a, like, a lot of this like support and advice and guidance and then obviously you get some that are just a lot more diligent with their yeah uh, we've had some players who every conversation has been around why it's someone else's fault manager picks me in the wrong position uh teammates don't spot my runs or they play the ball two yards behind me and like there's always tales of woe with some students Mm -hmm. so some athletes and some of the guys we work with just every conversation is about how do how do i get better uh and that is basic growth mindset stuff and you kind of go that difference if you multiply that by 365 days in the year and over a 10-year career you can see why some players might start at similar potential age 20 but their mm-hmm. careers just go off on massive tangents uh like i find it interesting how if you look at this england squad uh, let's say the last world cup or like the previous world cup and if you had to predict 10 years ago who'd be the england squad you wouldn't be picking those players like no way would you pick kane and vardy as your starting strikers 10 years ago because mm-hmm. they could they can get a game in league one in england uh and so, yeah, talent. Crazy, and, I know. Yeah, talent in football is kind of like intelligence and education. Is it's a decent like you need to have it, but it's also not a great predictor by itself of how things are going to go. Mm-hmm. 
And do you think that's just a result? So, like, you're giving an example of those players then, like, some will soak up the feedback like a sponge to improve, others will be like, yeah. it's someone else's fault. Is that a result of maybe, like, their previous experiences or their, like, upbringing through school in terms of always, they've always been, like, top of the class or top of the, Ma- the football team and stuff like that? I'm just not used so to had, getting that criticism. We, 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 I had it when I, when I was at Watford Academy. Um, we had a number of kids who aged 15, up until, like, that age had always been the most just physically dominant they were just so much physically more mature than their teammates that they could just blast their way through and dominate games and then you get to 15 and everyone else kind of catches up and you realize that these people have never experienced failure or setback before so when they start to experience at 15 and they have to adapt their game Mm -hmm. unfortunately they really struggled with that because they'd always been told they were the most talented and they were the superstar and they were the next this and the next that. And yet when they then had to come under adversity, yeah, they, couldn't cope. They, they couldn't cope. They didn't take, they took feedback as criticism. They took the feedback as, are you saying I'm no longer the superstar? I'm no longer the most talented. And that wasn't what the feedback was designed for. And it's the exact same principle. And that's a damage their ego. Yeah. And once, and once, and once if you're very ego focused, which is easy to be both in sport and also as a teenager. Mm-hmm, uh, it's really hard to kind of see it in a different way. Yeah, like, but what's fascinating to me is, think back to when you were a teenager. Well, I look back at my teenage self, and it was literally like a different human being. Like the things that I said and did, I cringe at now. I would never behave. And yet at the time, that's who I was. Yeah. Uh, Mm-hmm. And, and so we know these, like, so, so like we know people make really bad choices in their teenage years. Uh, their brains are still developing. And going back to education, that's a difficult thing because you only have a short period of time in formal education as a kid. And yet, I want to help you maximise that. And yet, your brain hasn't finished developing to be able to maximise that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just about sharing that knowledge and education, isn't it? About yeah. about things like feedback and how to how to yeah. try and how to take it. It's so important, though. Because even oh. like with, with people that, that I work with as well, like sometimes if you give feedback and during a lesson and things during the heat of the moment, they're sometimes like they just cannot comprehend how it's their mm-hmm. fault, or and then it just ends up in this kind of heated discussion, or and it just you just don't get anywhere. It's, yeah. Um, so, so I'll tell you a really great example with teenagers on that is um, we know teenagers value social status more yeah. than adults. So like your opinion of your peers as a teenager holds real weight for you. Mm-hmm. And so you take something like smoking, uh, the risk if you smoke, and you know the risk as a teenager, is that in 30 years you might get lung cancer. But the risk if you don't smoke and all your friends are, is social exclusion. And that risk for many people far outweighs the risk of lung cancer in 30 years time, because they want to be part of the group. Mm -hmm. And so when I used to get feedback from my teachers, I would be, what was far more value to me was what my friends saw of me. And so if I could look cool by rejecting the feedback or arguing with the teacher, right. acting like I didn't care, that was far less risky because I had their approval than the risk of failing my exams because I valued that peer opinion mm-hmm. so much at that age. So dominant and so powerful for them. Ma- 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 massively. And going back to what you said earlier, Clark, that's why culture matters because you want that culture to be the dominant factor and mm-hmm. to influence those peer decisions. It's, yeah, a slow, it's, a, it's a slow process to try and crack that nut, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, really, it really is. Uh, which takes a lot of patience and energy from the staff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. That was a, a really interesting way to, to finish tonight's episode off, Brad. So we're going to finish yeah. off with our quickfire round of three questions that we do with all of our guests. So okay. three quick questions, just kind of off the top of the head answers, all right? Okay. Okay. If you could have a giant billboard anywhere, what would it say on it? I hope you've been listen, thinking about this one. Yeah, uh, I'd go for listen to a wee bit of everything podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah. it's not that before. Yeah, episode eighty-four. <laughs> oh, God. I, thought, I thought I was original there. <laughs> no, I listened to this episode. No, no, that's okay. the first time that came up. Oh, okay, that's good. I mean, yeah, okay, that's yeah, good. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> Which people or books have had the biggest influence on your life? Um. I read a book at university by a psychologist called Martin Seligman called Learned Optimism, which basically looks at how do you help people develop optimism. And that was the first time I kind of thought psychology was beyond just a boring topic, but it had real world application. Um, 
there's a work by a bunch of teachers in, a, in America called Work Hard, Be Kind, um, which I thought was pretty awesome. Um, and in terms of practicalness, uh, I do generally love Kate Jones's books on retrieval practice because for me, that actually put some of this psych stuff into actual action, which I thought was good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of that stuff can actually is is practical things that we can use in our in our daily yeah. jobs as well, which is is always helpful if you're looking for wee things to take away from podcasts. Um, number three, then final one. What advice would you give to a teacher who is wanting to start using growth mindset principles in their teaching? Do you have like a top three or something? Ah, top one definitely is okay. read as much research as possible. Uh, I, I've always thought there are a lot more people smarter than me who spent more time researching this. Uh, so can I just like steal their findings basically or steal their, their knowledge? Um, so kind of don't be afraid to like lean on others. Um, uh, number two, I'd say embrace trial and error. Like, the only way to learn is by doing, essentially. Uh, and last but not least, I think it's important when you mess up as a teacher, especially around growth mindset stuff, uh, is be kind to yourself. Because I'm now convinced, the older I get, everyone is just guessing at everything. Like, mm. no one knows anything for sure. People sometimes just act like they do. But, like, I don't know. I'm just my best guesses here tonight. Like, no one knows. Yeah. And so, therefore... There's no pressure on yourself. Like, mm. if everyone else is guessing, like, there's no need for me to have this imposter syndrome. There's no need for me to have a fear of failure because it actually doesn't matter because everyone is just guessing as they go along, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so, everyone, uh, everyone's still trying to work it out, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. And I'm actually convinced the people I find most interesting now are the people who have the most doubt. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I, I find people who think they know stuff for 100% and it's non negotiable are often either wrong or boring. Whereas yeah. the people like we, once you get to a certain level of knowledge, you actually know what you don't know, and you can appreciate the nuance or the shades of grey. Yeah, I think you'd be curious, don't you? But learning new things, yeah, from Boulder. Totally. But it's got to episode eighty, though. I'm still trying to work Lewis out, so it's uh, <laughs> all good. My and, and, and that's the thing, and I would never have known because to the outside it looks like you know. So that's good. Yeah, I know that's that. No, listen, he always throws a spanner in the works, so keeps yeah. keeps keeps me on my toes. It's never, never like a, a podcast episode if he doesn't get his wee flight again somewhere. <laughs> oh, good to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose, it, I suppose it, it contributes to the entertainment value, hopefully. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> but um, thanks for coming on tonight, Bradley, and uh, sharing your, your your knowledge and experience on on uh, all the things we've been speaking about in terms of growth mindset and metacognition. Really appreciate your time tonight, even though it's a, it's a late one. Oh, no, well, thanks for inviting me, and I uh, appreciate it. And um, yeah, thanks for, thanks for your time. Pleasure, Brad. Great, ch- ch- great chatting to you. Cheers, guys. Thanks, thanks again. So, another um, episode of the podcast done, Clark. On to the takeaway messages. We will start with you this evening. What is your main takeaway message from tonight's episode with Bradley Bush from Inner Drive? Might as be going on at the point about how 85% of the learning happens outside school. So, how can we use the principles that... Um, Bradley was talking about in terms of growth mindset and um, praising the process, making sure that learning is not linear, it's going to be messy and up and down, try to educate parents, that's what it means to be. So involving family learning and um, getting parents in, on, in and on board, whether it's through the parent council or inviting them into like family learning days with MPE, educating them on the benefits of growth mindset and the feedback that they can be given at home which is the same principles as we're given in school and educating uh, and giving them a greater awareness of the benefit it can have on their motivation, confidence and resilience within their learning. That'll be it. What would yours be? Uh, my takeaway message, something that really clicked with me that I um, thought was a, a very good point that he spoke about in relation to when starting a new topic. Um, and that's with, obviously, when you're starting a new topic, try and give them that success factor early on so because if you start a new topic and then you make it far too difficult and their first experience of that new topic or whatever it is you're trying to teach them is failure then that is a um, surefire way to demotivate the pupils so mm-hmm. mine would be give them easy easy questions easy activities to do when you're starting a new topic to obviously get that motivation that success and um, then you can start trying to make it a wee bit more complicated to 
Um, go go on with it. But I, I really liked also what he said about how um, you sometimes leave university and you get this preconceived idea of what learning actually looks like. And when you're teaching, it looks like everything's all singing, all dancing, questions, you're getting answers straight away when actually it's not the case. There is a lot of um, awkward mm-hmm. silences and a lot of probing to get answers. You know what I mean? So it's not always. Mm-hmm. I know what you mean. It's not always the case um, that it is all all singing, all dancing. That's I think that's unrealistic, and I think that's something that we need to be obviously mindful, mindful and aware of um, that the learning is happening, but it doesn't always necessarily look like it is. Um, it doesn't look amazing. It doesn't look linear. It's it's a, it's a messy process, as they say. You, you, you never know what anyone's learning uh-huh. from watching it. Okay, with that being said, we hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. And we'll be back again at the same time next week for another episode of the Obo Podcast. Thanks again for joining us in this week's episode of the podcast. We hope you've been able to take something away that you can implement into your practice or life. If you regularly listen to the podcast, then why not leave us a review to let us know how we're doing and where we can perhaps improve. That way we can take action and further develop the Obo podcast. Until next time, we hope you have a fantastic week. Take care.